The original record-breaking shower of comics are back again in the sequel to Private's Progress, I'm All Right, Jack. I'm all right, Jack, I'm okay. That is the message for today. So count up your lolly, fab your net. Let someone else worry, boy, I couldn't care less. You scratch my back, I'll do the same. They're all here in the first historical motion picture of the post-war world. Right, page 21. Same me. Good Lord, man, what the hell do you think you're doing? Shut that bleeding door! Go on, get off out of it, will you? I do beg your pardon. I'm new here. You, Burke. Yes, the whole shower is here. And now they're joined by Peter Sellers as Kite, a man who believes in striking while the iron is hot or cold. Brother Windrush, I'm obliged to put to you an open question. Did you or did you not, in fact, collaborate with the management? Me? Collaborate? You silly c c c c to Goompod. Uh, my name is Tyler Adams, and as far as I know, I am the only podcast host who spends an unusually excessive, some might say unseemly, amount of time staring at pictures of Irene Handel, the internet, and calling it research. This week, I'm joined by the comedian and writer Meryl O'Rourke to discuss a film which came out in the last dying days of the 1950s, and which, with a satirical snarl, tackled head-on some big topics such as industrial corruption, pettifogging bureaucracy, and boardroom machinations, taking swipes at both trades unions and management alike. And as Merrill says in the show, in many ways, the 1959 film I'm Alright Jack is still relevant today, depressingly. Uh, I must point out that this was recorded, this podcast was recorded back in mid-September, and a lot has happened between the actual planning and research for the episode, the, the actual recording of the episode, and the actual episode going out. So when we were planning and researching, Boris Johnson was Prime Minister. When we recorded it, Liz Truss was Prime Minister. And as this goes out in late October, Rishi Sunak has been PM for all of a day and a half. We can only begin to speculate who next month's Prime Minister will be. Shop steward Fred Kite was arguably Peter Sellers' big breakout role and won him the BAFTA in 1960, and his is a mesmerising performance, but there are some terrific British stars and character actors supporting him, such as Margaret Rutherford, Terry Thomas, Sam Kidd, Victor Madden, Liz Fraser, Dennis Price, and Dickie Attenborough. Merrill and I chatted about the film for ages, and this episode would be longer than it is, uh, except sadly I had to cut a chunk out about 20 minutes in, due to a technical fault and gremlins and audio issues, but thankfully not much was lost and I hope you enjoy the show. I started off by asking Meryl why she had chosen I'm All Right Jack to talk about. One thing I've noticed a lot on podcasts recently is, is I seem to talk about my mum on almost every podcast I do, which shows that I was an only child in a single parent family and she loved old 
Ealing type comedies, but she particularly loved this film. So I grew up watching it. But also the interesting thing about I'm All Right, Jack is how deeply political it is and how upsettingly relevant it still mm. is. Mm. Um, I mean, when we're recording this now, we're recording it just at the end of Quasi Quartain presenting his budget. And I was, as you know, because you retweeted it, tweeting that everybody needs to watch the film again because um, there's a lot of stuff in it about profiteering and uh, right-wing arms profiteering and giving money to the wrong people for the wrong things. Yes. Yeah. Well, that's, that's me putting morals on it because, um, I mean, the interesting thing about the film is that nobody comes off in a good light. Uh, and I've always had a bit of a crush on comedy, which is damning to every single person in the cast. <laughs> I don't know why. It'd be interesting for a psychologist to look at why I like comedies where everyone is an asshole. <laughs> because well, they... the only, only time I can find a character to relate to is if all of them are assholes. <laughs> well, there's a few, there's a few that have few characters in this that have redeeming features. I mean, Stanley Windrush, and we'll yes. come on to it, but Stanley Windrush, played by Ian Carmichael, he's more or less, he's the hero of the film, Was he? but he ends up losing out. And you've got, you've got, you know, I really handle, you've got Liz Fraser. Absolutely. Actually, yes, that's true. Well, I wouldn't say everybody, I suppose the main broad characters are assholes. Stanley is meant to be likeable, but there's always something, I find Ian Carmichael quite interesting casting because... He's meant to be an everyman, but he doesn't seem very everyman. Like, he doesn't seem familiar. I don't know if he would have been more familiar in the late 50s. Um, and, but also, I was asking myself, like, when he is the everyman, so he's meant to be the person that the audience watched the film through. So you see the mm. film through his eyes. Mm. So I was asking myself, that at the point of the strike, would I have gone into work? And I guess the point where he breaks the strike was the point where I thought, well, actually, no, I'm not like him. I'm more like the unionist, the union leaders and the union members, despite the fact that they are painted as it work shy idiots. But if I'm being honest about myself, I am so influenced by the ideals of the trade union movement that I wouldn't want to break the strike because I would believe it was morally wrong, mm. even though in the film, they point out that they kind of have made up their own morals going along and none of it is really based on morals. It's based on fear and selfishness. True. Um, it, it's weird to think now that a film made in 1960, that the lead character is that posh. I mean, he's from the aristocracy and yet he's meant to be the person we relate to. He, he's the mm. person who they figure the film is aimed at. Um, and it's interesting as well when you think that in the theatre at that time was the absolute boom of the angry young man and Joan Littlewood and, yeah. and working class uh, theatre and comedy. So it is quite interesting that the films were still perpetuating that everybody in Britain was very posh and related to the aristocracy. Well, if in fact, the pre-credits sequence in this yes. film is, and I've, I always forget this, that Sellers plays two parts in this film. Yes. I always, well, I, think, I mean, the first one is so small. Hmm. I don't, it's not really a part, is it? No, it still qualifies, I think. I think. <laughs> um, he's, he's playing one of his old men um, that he always played so well. And, um, yes. and he's, uh, he's called Sir John and he's in this gentleman's club. The servant comes in and tells him the war is over. So it's obviously 19, 1945. And, and there's some, some quite sharp narration mm -hmm. basically saying there he goes Sir John on his way out um and and then you see footage of Churchill doing the V sign and then cheeky young Victor Madden giving two fingers to the camera 
and then we get this credit the the credit sequence kicks in with this rock and roll yes uh song i'm all right jack which sounds very, very loud brutal rock and roll song yeah it sounds very it sounds a bit quaint now i suppose but at that time it would have been achingly modern i guess and i think um that actually to my ears from what i was expecting it sounds very brutal i think people wouldn't expect a song i mean it's, it's odd because it was 1959 so it wasn't a quaint time in british history but it's it's very loud and clangy and and not particularly melodic yes um so i think and also that in contrast with the searle-esque illustrations um, it's quite a big juxtaposition as well. They've got these quite polite drawings next to it. And, and the title sequence does look like it costs 20p. I mean, it does look like John Bolting literally scribbled some things on a bit of paper and held them up to the camera. Yeah, um, there's a lot yeah. of there's a lot of very relevant current stuff in this film for the time. Like there's yeah. there's, the, there's that sequence with the um, it's like Beatlemania for, for Stanley, where there's these uh, people standing outside his house. Yes. The teenage girls have got Elvis T-shirts where they've crossed out the word Elvis and written Stanley. Exactly. That's it. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And again, it just it dates it, doesn't it? I suppose um, all that sort of thing. But it's still like you say, it's still very relevant to the themes. Um, Politics are. So, yeah. So I'm all right, Jack. It, it mm -hmm. comes out in um, it gets its London premiere in August 59. Okay, because um, everything I was reading was saying 59 and 60, so. Well, it's proper, it gets full release in December 59. Right. Which obviously bleeds into, into 1960. Um, interestingly, and I'd love to know more about this, and I can't, I've looked and looked and looked, I can't find any more. Now, it's been a crazy couple of weeks, Meryl, hasn't it? Let's face it. Yes, the, we are recording this uh, the same week as the Queen's funeral, which was Monday, which feels like a million years ago now. It does. But the Queen, so Harold Macmillan. Yes, I love this little fact. Oh, you know about this. So she, she yeah, goes, yeah, yeah. It goes up to Balmoral in September 59 to request a general election. And she gives him a private showing of the film. Which I find so incredibly radical considering what the film is about. The, the film is about every strata of British society being completely immoral and corrupt and selfish. Yes. Yeah. And, 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 and also the film is suggesting that the old order is irrelevant. As, but as... even that the new order, I mean, if, if the person who's representing the future, the youngest character, Liz Fraser, who's the teenager, she is portrayed as a complete idiot. So they're not, there's nothing in the film which is saying, well, we've got hope in the future because the teenage girls are all crushing after some bloke who's in the newspaper simply because he's in the newspaper. True. So it offers no hope either. Yeah, and it's it's directed by, or it's produced and directed by the, the Bolting brothers, as you you mentioned before. Mm -hmm. um, I always forget the other one's name, John Bolting and... Uh, Roy. Roy, there we go. Yeah. By the way, mm -hmm. what's your favourite Cooler Shaker song? Well, I, I know this already. I know that... <laughs> <laughs> because, okay, short answer, uh, the 303, because I was a huge Cooler Shaker fan, right. um, and I always listen to the... 303 on the A303. But yes, of course, Crispian Mills is the grandson of one of which one? No, no, no. The son of. The son? Roy Bolting. Really? Because I thought he was grandson because no. the grandson. Now, this is a tie into my solo show. So here we go. Here's my pitch. And I okay. can tie it into I'm All Right, Jack. I actually can tie my solo show <laughs> to the 
to I'm All Right, Jack. My solo show is called Vanilla. Yeah. It's mainly about um, me considering whether teenage girls are told lies about their sexuality now that their sexuality is powerful. And there's quite a lot in it about Jade from Little Mix, who wears uh, quite extreme bondage gear now in videos, despite the fact their demographic are not uh, legally allowed to do up their own seatbelts. But this is the kind of stuff <laughs> she likes to sell. Now, Jade from Little Mix goes out with Jordan Stevens. And Jordan Stevens from Rizzle Kicks is the grandson of one of the Bolting brothers. Oh, okay. Yeah. Well, right. Well, so that's not, Crispian Mills is not the only pop star. Jordan Stevens as well. He's Emma Bolting's son. Right. No, Roy, uh, Roy yeah. Bolting was married a couple of times and he married Hayley Mills. Yes. Um, so Crispian is his son, even though okay. he was quite a, he was quite significantly older than Hayley Mills, Roy Bolton. Um, so it's it's the second most profitable British movie of fifty nine. Uh, I'm all right, Jack. Uh, after Carry On, Nurse, mm -hmm. uh, which um, Irene Handel also appeared in. Um, so she was busy in fifty nine, because she was also she was also recording uh, an LP with Peter Sellers, as you know. Yes, which I have here. Which next time I come up north, I'm going to give to you, aren't I? Thank you. Yes, that's great. Songs, songs for swinging sellers, which I pointed out to you as well, and I found this quite interesting when you were saying about how much he loved working with Irene Handel. So there's actually a track on it called "Where Is It?" Shadows on the Grass. Yes. Which Handel wrote. Irene Handel wrote the sketch. Yes. And there are a lot of people on here that wrote, you know, uh, Frank Muir is name checked, Dennis Norden, but none of them are mentioned by Peter Sellers in the sleeve notes apart from Irene Handel. And he calls her um, that mistress of comedy and pathos. And it's quite a big thing, I think, for Peter Sellers to have written down this person I consider a mistress of comedy and you do wonder whether there was I mean she was 20 years older than him so you do wonder whether there was a kind of mother thing going on there because I know he's very attached to his mother so whether he transferred mm. that slightly to Irene Handel quite possibly um, actually yeah that's a good point I don't know what it I mean I know that I said to you previously that the two of them were very close as, as you've said she could she could give him criticism and he would take it you know, yeah, um, which he wouldn't take from many people, Spike Milligan, no. maybe. But um, interesting as well for me as a female comedy writer that um, we still have a bit of an issue that female comedy writers aren't name checked enough. Mm. Um, and I am very aware of that because I keep waiting for <laughs> I spend a lot of years going, where's, where's my credit? So I think it really struck me that he would name check Irene Handel and call her a mistress of comedy, especially someone, especially someone like Sellers, who was so dismissive of other people's work, who was quite dismissive of women. And I know that came a bit later in his career. You know, I know he was a lot happier in the 50s than he was later. And by the way, you, you do a lot of writing for Frankie Boyle, don't you? I do, I do. I write a lot with Frankie. And and there's a lot of, I mean, he credits us on New World Order. There is, we're credited as writers. There are still a lot of shows which don't like to use the word writers. I think it's getting more okay now. Britain's always been uh, rather suspicious of people who don't do everything themselves in a way that America has always accepted. That comedy is difficult. And especially writing a weekly show where things are changing constantly is difficult. Um, so yeah, and, and, and when I started getting those proper credits, you know, when Frankie said to his team, we're going to call these people writers, and so on IMDb, I'm a writer. It was massively important for me, um, not even just as a, as a career step, but just psychologically, when, when you work really hard, and you're doing the best you can, and then nobody knows you've done it, it can be quite depressing. Mm, absolutely, yeah.
so yeah so this film it's a it's a sequel to private's progress which i must admit i haven't seen i have and i almost like it's kind of not a sequel it's just got the same cast it's almost like saying you know it's like it's like if you set the empire strikes back in a department store just with the same people it's (laughs) not like with chewbacca (laughs) taking up the threading chair or whatever it's it's not a sequel it's just using the same characters because it doesn't right you don't have to watch the first one okay but also i wonder if that's why sellers struck people so much in this film because he he was the character that wasn't in private's progress mm. um yeah possibly i mean it, he he's the he's the most real character in this film um, yes. everyone's playing caricatures aren't they and, and everyone is overdoing it massively yeah and sellers yeah. is is sellers is very subtle um it's ian carmichael said that sellers role in i'm all right jack lifted him from being a comedian to an actor yes so the bolting brothers they were like they were twins they were identical twins okay. and they were i think a bit like the cohen brothers they alternated directing and producing film by film uh john bolting directed this roy bolting produced it and they were the two of them were, I believe, big Liberal Party supporters. And, and so what that meant was that they disliked both what they would regard as the reactionary conservatives and also the what they would regard as the militant socialists. So they're sort of in the middle. And that's why I think um, they're disdainful of both trade unions and the, the, manage, the corrupt management. Um, it's kind of a, a, a plague on all your houses scenario, isn't it? Yes. And they'd satirised, in their films, they'd satirised the military and Private's Progress, um, the judiciary in Brothers in Law, um, big business like in this film, and the church in Heavens Above, which was another Peter Sellers film. Um, Yeah. And and so, yeah, so this this film takes swipes at both, as we say, both strident unions and corrupt management. But you've got this character played by Peter Sellers who is, he doesn't turn up until about 25 minutes into the film. Mm-hmm. What do you think you're doing? Frightfully sorry. I'm afraid I haven't quite got this thing buttoned up yet. What's your name? Windrush. Oh, me and my colleagues of the Works Committee. How do you do? You mentioned I'm all right, Jack, and immediate, uh, immediately everyone will think of Peter Sellers as Fred Kite. Uh, they don't immediately think of Dennis Price as the Machiavellian industrialist or Richard Attenborough, who's his his colleague, if you like. Um, Richard Attenborough playing um, Coxie, who was, uh, who, yeah. uh, who was uh, in the army with uh, Stanley Windrush, Ian Carmichael. Um, and we, we're, we're going to come back to, the, to these themes and we're going to talk about the plot of the film. But I just wanted to say, Salas mm-hmm. famously was reluctant to sign on for this film. Mm-hmm. And the Boltings were keen to get him on board. They, they saw Salas as... Fred Kite, they, you know, they didn't consider anyone else. And because he'd read the script and he, there weren't any obvious gags in it. And really? Okay. He, yeah, well, he he felt there weren't. Um, but he's thinking, you know, he's doing the goon show around this time. It's gag, gag, gag. Whereas yeah. this film, this film is a lot about the humors in perfor- in the performance, isn't it? Yes. And the first spoken gag is a pubic hair joke. And I thought, okay, I can get on board with this film. <laughs> I was worried I was too lowbrow to be to be talking about this film, but since the first gag is a pube gag, yeah, it, it also. Oh, um, show. she's she's not a natural blonde. Yes, right. That's the first scripted gag. <laughs> right, 
we'll, we're going to come on to that. Um, <laughs> not not onto the pubic hair. Um, but um, Sellers, it wasn't until Sellers put on, or had the hair cropped back, had put on the little Hitler moustache, put on the ill-fitting suit, and started impersonating. Um, he was impersonating one of the shop stewards that worked with the boltings, partly. I've read that he studied quite a few shop stewards. And mm. another thing that that is relatively unsaid about Sellers because it wasn't trendy was that he was a method actor. Um, so he would stay in character for as long as possible and before the film and after the film. Yeah. So Sellers put on this suit and the, the, the moustache and, and started playing this character. And some of the crew, film crew, started applauding because they recognised this character, if you know what I mean. They, yes. they recognised this as being a shop steward type. And that just uh, imbued in Sellers this confidence that, yes, actually, this, this might work. One this, of the things that I find quite fascinating watching it over and over again so he was in his 30s when he made this and yeah. he was kind of he was kind of our Orson Welles in that he would play much older characters in prosthetics even when he was quite young yeah um though unlike Orson Welles he would lose himself in them whereas or Orson Welles always just basically was Orson Welles with a hat on mm. um <laughs> but now I don't know if the, and he's so he's playing it doesn't define his age and actually in reality the trade unionists after the war were relatively young but if he's the same age as Irene Handel, he's playing 50s. So normally you would expect somebody to wrinkle up their face. Now his forehead, and I, like I say, you would know this better than I, because I've watched it a few times now. It looks like he's got a prosthetic forehead. His forehead is completely smooth and does not move at all. And is linked to the hairpiece. Um, and that's quite an interesting choice when you're playing somebody older. His face doesn't move and he, his lips almost doesn't. He talks through an almost closed mouth. Mm. And yet he conveys all of the emotion of the character through his eyes. The oh, eyes yeah. are slightly changed with darting and through pauses with the speech, but not with any kind of full facial expression. And was quite interesting. I, I decided to look at some videos of Mick Lynch. So we're talking about real trade union leaders mm. and Mick Lynch with that huge forehead because he's bald. He does the same thing. And there is something in a trade unionist where they have learnt the principles of what they're saying so tightly that there's actually no thought process or reaction process. They just say, we are here to say this. You know, Mick Lynch will have a completely characterless face. He'll just say, I'm waiting for Mr. Shapps to come to the table. When he wants to come to the table, we will discuss the, play, the pay rise in exactly the same way that Fred Kite does. And I find the forehead decision a very interesting one for a man who is so young who wants to look older, but he's going, no, I'm going to have this clear forehead because he plays him as an innocent, really. Well, yeah, I, I don't know about the forehead. I didn't pick up on that, but I know that Sellers has a certain acting style, which is very much minimal facial expressions often. I don't know how many Sellers films you've seen over the years, but it's a lot of it, like you say, is down to the eyes. He does a lot of, you know, yeah. the eyes dart from left to right all the time. Um, yes. He doesn't do much with his mouth. He's quite stiff in his performances in the sense that what I mean is he holds himself quite rigidly. Uh, he walks, he's got a, he's got a, a walk, which is quite stiff and um, precise, if you like. Yeah. And, and with this character as well, he's obviously, um, yeah, he's rehearsed, he's rehearsed things he's going to say. The character 
kite has rehearsed things he's mm. like an autodidact i guess he's self-taught yes. and he doesn't quite there's all the malapropisms like um he's uh the management is willfully chiropodizing the safety of its employees yeah uh, things like that you know he's read that word but he's never said it i've so, read you know, i've written so many notes i can't even find the good notes because there's another one later as well but i can't find it now. <laughs> we'll, we'll come to it we'll come to it um but let's just start running through what happens in the film and i'm not going to go into huge detail about each scene or anything but i just want to sort of run through the 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 plot of the film and after the credits that we mentioned we we, were you expecting this when you first saw the film were you expecting to see the actor miles mallison naked albeit with a with a big um bowl of uh, peas on his lap so you don't see his taters but um... i have (laughs) i first saw this film when i was a little girl so i i don't know basically um the film has just been with me for the whole of my life (laughs) yeah yeah but it opens at the sunny glades nature camp where uh stanley windrush who is played by ian carmichael who was our hero if you like if you want to call him that um he's talking to his father miles mallison who is um happily uh shelling peas naked and he's actually washing mushrooms oh is that what he's doing oh okay because because when i analyze something i look far too deeply into it so i wonder if the mushrooms were meant to be symbolic of nuclear war but yes (laughs) wow okay like i say when i'm analyzing something i will actually analyze it (laughs) yeah by the way just on naturism or nakedness in general where's this going you're thinking um one of the stars of this film was very partial to a spot of skinny dipping in lakes and rivers well that doesn't surprise me they were all very decadent mm. decadent but posh british actors would it surprise okay. you if i told you it was margaret rutherford only in that i have not heard that before and i would like to have heard that before <laughs> we've well, heard it now um, <laughs> She, she, her husband, who was called uh, Stringer Davis, I think his name was, who's, who, okay. who pops up in this film in an uncredited role, um, although I'm not sure which one he is. I know he's an older man, but apparently they would, they would, both of them would often go, uh, you know, go for a drive in the countryside. And if they went past a, a, a nice looking river or whatever, they'd um, pull up, strip naked, jump in and... <laughs> yeah, Martha Rutherford seems like the sort of woman who'd do whatever the hell she wants. Yes. Yeah, she's fantastic, isn't she? Yeah. Um, uh, we'll come to her. The but- female cast of this film is particularly fantastic. And 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 like I, I wrote something that they're like a meal and, and there are four particular women that stick out. You know, well, Esma Cannon is criminally underused because yeah. she's a, a wonderful comic actress and you do wonder if there were cuts. So you've got Esma Cannon, who's like a little amused bouche. And then you've got Margaret Rutherford, who's like a roast dinner. And then Irene Handel arrives, who's like a spotted dick pudding. And then you've got Liz <laughs> Fraser who's your, you know, flaming shot of Sambuca and, and for absolute icons of, of, of female comedy acting. Totally. Absolutely. And I want to talk about them all. Um, hmm. But Stanley's, I don't quite understand. Stanley wants to, Stanley wants to work, I've written down, wants to work with the virtuous lower classes is, is how he would probably see it, if you know what I mean. That's, that's, he wants to go into, get a job in industry. Oh, well, he doesn't, I don't think he specifically angles to work with the lower classes, because of course, the first job he goes for is in marketing, and they're very clearly not working class. It seems to be more that he wants to stand on his own two feet. True. Yes. Yeah. You, you, yeah, that's right. That's right. Yeah, because he goes for a job at the Detto factory, which is detergent powder. Yes. Um, that's another thing. This, this film takes swipes at unions and management. 
but it also takes swipes at um, consumerism. Yes. Try saying that with your teeth and consumerism. <laughs> That's um, why I said marketing. <laughs> yeah, um, and 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 there's uh, there's a couple of jingles, advertising jingles, because obviously um, this film is made well only f- less than five years after ITV began, where um, the British public for the first time really saw uh, adverts and heard Hi. jingles like this. But he, he goes for a job at the Detto factory, which doesn't work out, and then he goes to. Um, uh, the <laughs> num yum factory. Num yum. Num yum's the best bun. Num yum. So always say num yum. Num yum is scrumptious and it's so nutritious. Num yum. Num yum is food and fun. Num yum. Num yum's the best bun. Num yum. Because it's often milky and delicious. Num yum. My daughter is one of her little, you know, her teenagers have catchphrases. So num 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 is one of her things that she says all the time. And she was very upset to find out <laughs> that already existed in 1959. Oh, uh, well, and I couldn't work out what a num, num yum is like a, some sort of confectionery. It looks like it seems look, to be a nougat thing. It's made out of sugar and it's white. It so looks I like think... it's um. It looks like it's got a a cherry or, or it's got like a goat's eye. I wrote down. <laughs> um, it just looks disgusting. Um, well, it's meant to. He vomits in the num yum factory, doesn't yeah. it? So it is meant to be disgusting. <laughs> uh, Stanley Stanley vomits in a large mixing vat. And it's kind of like these, these, this machinery in this num yum factory, it's hideous looking machinery that's kind of like something out of Fritz Lang's Metropolis. <laughs> um, <laughs> by the way, um, mm-hmm. you, know, you know the, so Stanley's gone to the university appointments board and he's, he gets all these interviews at different companies. You know, right. the, the guy that organizes these interviews, did you recognize yes. that actor? I do, and I'm terrible with names. So I wrote down some of the names, but he was the first point where I went on IMDb because I was like, oh, hang on, that's him, and he was in everything. Right. Do you know what... I mean, his name is Brian Alton. Well, I'll arrange some appointments for you and send you a list of people you can go and see. I hope you have some luck. Thank you very much, sir. Owen Windrush, don't forget. Intelligence, enthusiasm, and an air of confidence. Above all, an air of confidence. Do you know what I always associate him with? I'm sure you probably are the same when I'm going to tell you. That episode of The Young Ones, when oh. um, when Vivian goes mad, when, sorry, when Neil's parents visit, he's okay. he's Neil's dad, right? And that's the, oh. that's the scene where they talk about the good life and Vivian goes mad and has this rant about the good life. That's ripping up the screen. Yes, yeah. And, and Neil's dad tells him off. Uh, and and uh, can you picture it in your in your mind's eye? Vaguely. Mm. Well, I've got a good mind to give you a lucky good punch on the bottom for what you just said. <laughs> You're talking about the woman I love. Yeah, and me, I love her too. <laughs> yes, well, I agree with the spotty twerps on that one. Felicity Kendall is sweetly pretty. Just what a real girl it should be. I mean, speaking as a feminist myself, I can, <laughs> say, I can safely say this. But Felicity Kendall is a wonderful woman, and I want to protect her. Well, it's the first time I've ever heard it called that. <laughs> say something. Shut up, Vivian. That's my dad you're talking about. <laughs> um, we get Stanley, we see Stanley next at home, and this is where Esma Cannon turns up very briefly. Um, and then as a servant to his aunt. So I'm not sure if he's quite do I mean I don't know Private's progress as well, but 
that's his aunt Dolly. So it's not his home. And his father is, I think I got the feeling that because his father's moved into the nudist colony, he now doesn't actually have somewhere to live. So there's also that as well. Mm. I think his father sold the family home to go and live in a nudist colony. So Stanley kind of has to find a flat and find somewhere to live and find a job or become a nudist, which he finds <laughs> horrific. Yeah, it does. And again, um, spoilers, I find it quite amusing that he finds the naked women at the end, he finds them as terrifying as the corrupt missile industry. Yeah. He finds both equally terrifying. Yeah, but I, I also was quite puzzled by how they were really, really keen to get him to play tennis, so much so that they actually chase him. <laughs> yeah. uh, but Margaret Rutherford is his aunt Dolly and I, I, I was brought to mind because obviously um, Ian Carmichael goes on to play Bertie Worcester in the 60s on television. Yes, with, uh, with aunts, Dennis Price. With Dennis Price, yes. Um, and it's kind of reversed here. You've got Dennis Price as his uncle Uncle Bertie and, and they have this plan. Obviously, they he offers, Bertie's a director of this engineering firm and he offers his nephew a job and um, and and Margaret Rutherford's not sure about this, is she? She's um... yeah. So that was one thing I was going to mention earlier when you were saying about how um, Fred Kite's character stuck in the consciousness more than the other characters. Is one thing we've got to remember of the time is that Dennis Price was known for playing bad guys. That was what he did. Yes. Like every time you see Dennis Price in a film, you know someone's going to die. Yeah. Um, in fact, Jeeves was a real departure for him when he started playing Jeeves. Yeah. Um, so some of it also would have been that there was no surprise. There was no surprise when Dennis Price is murderous for that contemporary audience. The same with uh, Richard Attenborough, who I think is interesting now, because now we look at Richard Attenborough as being this very posh lovey. And we think of Richard Attenborough, as, oh, Dickie Attenborough, which at the time, of course, he was Pinky from Brighton Rock. He was a spiv. He was a nasty little thug. Um, he wasn't thought of as, as posh. As, as this posh sort of, well, we think of him as an elderly man. He clearly wasn't thought of as an elderly man. But I suppose for the contemporary audience to see these bad guys being played by Dickie Attenborough and Dennis Price wouldn't have been a surprise. Whereas Peter Sellers' character was new and it wasn't somebody they'd seen portrayed in film as much. That's true. That's true. Yeah, and Richard Attenborough, the following year, he turns up in the film The League of, Gen the League of Gentlemen. I don't know if you've ever seen that. That's a, I have, and I can't remember who he plays. It's a cracking film. He plays one of the gentlemen. Um, <laughs> yeah, but, but I meant but, I couldn't remember if he plays Spivy Murderer or Posh Bloke. <laughs> he's, no, no, he's a spiv. He's a spiv. Um, but, and, of course, he goes on and makes the 10 Rillington Place, which is one of my favourite films. Yeah, when he's a serial um, killer. Yeah. Um, and he's turned up in about... I mean, he, he's worked with Sellers. Um, he, he was in The Magic Christian. He was in a okay. couple of other Sellers films. But Dennis Price, he's the, he's in a load of films with Sellers. Um, okay. Naked Truth, which was which before this, Magic Christian again, The Millionaire S, Wrong Arm of the Law. Um, he even turned up at a goon show as a, as a guest star once. Right. But I think um, he just seemed to work constantly, generally, Dennis Price. He did, he did. And um, he had a bit of a sad life, really, I think, because he, had, he, sh he showed such promise in Kind Hearts and Coronets. Mm. And it, he never, I don't think he ever quite recaptured that. He never quite had that. I mean, he, he, he was never out of work, but he was never a star, really, was he? He was always. He was a, too cold, I think. His characters were always very cold and very dispassionate and, and relatively psychopathic. Yes. So you couldn't warm to him. 
you know you warm to Richard Attenborough is a spiv but there's so much character there and you feel like you would like to have a drink with him I mean you know they call him Coxie and all that mm-hmm. um in a way that Dennis Price you feel that if you had a drink with him he wouldn't speak <laughs> you know he would sit there staring at the table waiting for it to be over and I think that's probably why you, you didn't get a feeling of Dennis Price what he would be like off camera that's a very good point yeah He's always playing the same sort of character, more or less. So, yeah, so they offer they offer him this job. Stanley accepts the job. Um, we don't quite we don't know at this point what's going on, but St- Stanley turns up at Missiles Limited, and we have Terry Scott turning up. Yes, very young Terry Scott, in uh, a tiny little part. Yes, um, but and the, he's turned out to be horribly right wing as well, hasn't he? Talking of people who turned out to yeah. be horribly right wing. I think he was a huge fan of Rhodesia or Ian Smith, you know, um, in Rhodesia and his his uh, policies in the 70s, 60s and 70s. Yeah, Terry Scott, by all accounts, um, was um, a difficult man <laughs> in many ways. <laughs> uh, and, and, and we have Knowles, who's played by Victor Madden. Yes, who, who's wonderful, who's very likable in this. And um, he, see, he's another person I was thinking from this, why wasn't Victor Madden bigger? And maybe it was a time when working class actors didn't really make it as big. Um, and one thing that I find quite interesting at the very end is that when um, when Stanley has his breakdown, well, not his breakdown exactly, but when he's on television and he decides to tell it how it is, he starts off by saying, it's what my old mate Nolsey would have said. Yes. And through the ho- even though Stanley is meant to be the one person we hold on to all the way through the film, you realise that with all of these crooked people he's met, and Knowles is just as crooked as everybody else. Like, Knowles is the one who um, completely justifies poor guys playing cards whilst they're still being paid full whack. Um, but Stanley clings on to him. And it's, I, I find that quite striking at the end when he says, it's like my old mate Knowles, he told me. He realises that Knowles is actually one of the wisest people mm. in the film that he's met. That's Even though point. he's a skyver and a shirker and he lets people get full pay for no work. Yeah, but I think I think Knowles is one of the few in the film that, um, even though he thinks he's a bit of a Burke, Stanley. Yeah. Um, he's, he's essentially decent to him, isn't he? He's not. Yeah, he tells him what to do. Like when he forgets to plug his plug his um, forklift truck in, he goes, well, you haven't plugged your forklift truck in, you idiot. (laughs) Of course it's not going to work. And he goes, can't somebody else do that? And he goes, no, that's somebody else's job. Yeah, demarcation, mate. Demarcation, which does make sense when you look into it. That if if I start, I mean, we've all had jobs like that. We've all had jobs where one of us is doing slightly more than the other person. And petty things like I have to plug your forklift truck in every morning for you, and yet I'm getting paid the same amount as you. It does great, even though that sounds petty. If mm. it's every day, it does great. So you do then understand why each person has to have a different delineated job. Otherwise, you start going, well, I, I'm not getting paid as much as you. And yes, I'm doing your work. Yeah. Um, Terry Thomas. Mm. Terry Thomas turns up, who's Major Hitchcock, the personnel officer. Yes. Uh, and and, and he's, he's called Major Hitchcock. I'm wondering... I've written here, is he really a major? Is he one of those like um, Captain Peacock from How You Being Served? He's a major a in Private's Progress. Oh, is he? Oh, well, yeah, there you go. that's why he's introduced as Major Hitchcock. Um, and I do get the feeling as well. You get, do you get the feeling that Terry Thomas is just improvising all the way through? Because he does all of the, ter- he could, oh, they're all absolute stinkers. 
So he does all of his catchphrases all the way through, and you're going, did the Boltings write this? Like did they write in his absolute star, so. or did they just say to Terry Thomas, "Just do your thing, mate. Just just do what you do." There's that scene where he's talking to because John Lemessurier <laughs> turns up as the uh, time and motion study yeah. man, and he's talking Looking as depressed as John Lemessurier always did. Yeah, and and Terry Thomas is he, he mentions he he was out the previous night with a little redhead, and he just does that eye rolling thing. That little it, yeah, and it's just delicious that. And it? none of it goes with the character of. He's meant, I mean, he's not even management, he's middle management. So he answers to the bosses and he answers to the unions. He has very little power of his own. So Terry Thomas being so like, oh, yes, I'm a major, it doesn't actually make sense in that role. So you do get the feeling he's completely improvising. Yeah. We got chaps here who can break out into a max wit merely by standing still. The only thing they can't stand is being stopwatched. But the sole purpose of time and motion study is to enable the men to work efficiently, well within their natural capacity. Capacity? My dear fellow, the only capacity natural to these stinkers is the capacity to dodge the column. Oh, dear. steam like that. Rather a punishing night last night. To the spot of time and motion study of my own. Redhead. Rather athletic. <laughs> Quite. Terry Thomas, by the way, he'd worked a lot with sellers like recently in the sense that in the last in the 12 months 24 months leading up to this film he'd worked with sellers three times already yes um, and they were in a very early sellers film together when i was doing a little bit of research on this of um they were in tom thumb together playing the bad guys and terry right. thomas actually one of his quotes is that sellers was criminally underused so terry thomas was a big sellers fan and actually i think probably my favorite scene in i'm all right jack is the scene they have together mm. where he visits Fred Kite at home after Fred's wife's left him. That's right. Um, that's and they have a drink and they get sort of melancholy together. Well, that's um, another that's another sign. It's another interesting comparison because they're, they're both drinking sherry and it's clear that they're matching each other drink for drink. Yeah. But uh, Kite is sloshed because he's obviously not a big drinker, whereas Terry Thomas seems to be handling it quite well. You know, it just... Yeah. Kind of, you know, well, also... I very much got the feeling that Peter Sellers plays Fred Kite as a child, really. He's 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 more redolent of a like a 12-year-old girl, how he plays Fred Kite at home, anyway. Mm. I mean, the bit where he's talking about Russian culture and you expect him to talk about politics, and he goes, Oh, and the ballet. And mm. and he's 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 clearly, you know, he's got that crush on Stanley. Because again, I'm I'm aware I'm talking about this out of order. Uh, out of chronological That's order, fine. but the scene where they are talking about um, their wives, I mean, I, th I think Terry Thomas is talking about a woman leaving him because they're, they're, they're both talking about Fred's wife leaving him. And Peter Sellers, maybe Fred Kite says, do you think he'll come back? Um, mm. Which is so unnoticed in the script, I wonder if Peter Sellers put that in because Peter Sellers absolutely plays Fred Kite as having as much of a crush on Stanley as his daughter has. Mm. In fact, mm. more. His daughter just likes the fact that there's a single man in the house, whereas Fred genuinely adores everything, every single thing about Stanley Windrush. He wants to be Stanley Windrush. He wants to have been to Oxford. He's so jealous that he, Stanley went to Oxford. He thinks he's a, he thinks he's an intellectual, whereas he's not. Yeah. Is he? Stanley's not an intellectual, by any means. Just because he's got Stanley's a not, accent, no. And he's been and, to Oxford. 
Yeah. And that's quite sad as well in that with the class structure, uh, Stanley's been to Oxford, but is not intelligent, is not using it, is not using his degree to get a job. Whereas Fred actually has read a huge amount of books. He went to a summer school at Oxford. Yeah. He, he wants to be an intellectual, but his role in the class structure doesn't allow him to be. No, no. And as we say, I think know, I relate to Fred in that way. So I'm always somebody, even though I've got a posh accent, um, I'm, I was raised in the state and I'm from a working class family. And the reason I have a posh voice is both my parents had, had um, my, my dad had an Irish accent and my mum had a German accent. So they raised me to speak properly. Okay. Um, and so there's, there's, I think that's one of the reasons I'm, I'm a bit of a Fred Kite apologist, because I'm also somebody who feels I could have done so much better and I should have been encouraged to go to Oxford, but it wasn't even mentioned at my school, like not even mentioned. They brought me up to speak like this so I would get a job. And then what they forgot is that speaking like this at school meant I was so miserable and bullied. I didn't get any of my O-levels. Yeah. <laughs> um, we, we mentioned John LeMessurier just while I'm on yes. people appearing with sellers and other films. I was just, I just made a note of, because there's so many character actors in this film. There's all so, of them. They're all there. And, it's all of them. That's um, why they couldn't afford the title sequence. It's the cast. <laughs> they spent all their money on the cast. I had it in my head that Dennis Price, of, of all the cast, I had it in my head that Dennis Price had appeared in, in the most films with Sellers or films that Sellers was in, if you know what I mean. Mm -hmm. um, but actually, it's John LaMajuria. He appeared in 11 films that Peter Sellers was also in. Okay, so okay. not necessarily starring vehicles for Sellers, but they both appeared in um, The Pink Panther, Casino Royale, which was a disaster, um, The Magic Christian, Only Two Can Play, The Wrong Box, Never Let Go, Mr. Topaz, Wrong Arm of the Law, Waltz of the Toreadors, Carlton Brown of the F.O., and Sellers' last film, the dreadful fiendish plot of Dr. Fu Manchu. I remember Carlton Brown. I don't remember John LeMessurier John being in any of the others. <laughs> yeah, I mean, he's, oh, he's, it's only sometimes okay. just like in one scene, you know, but, um, but they all qualify. Um, sorry, you mentioned about the guys playing cards, by the way. Uh, yes. I just wanted to mention that, because that's, that's a really funny scene where Stanley's mm -hmm. driving his forklift, he moves a load, load of crates and he interrupts this card school that's going on. You've yeah. got, you've got um, and I wanted to mention it because listeners to this podcast will know that I have a, uh, I'm a big fan of the actor David Lodge. Right, yes. Um, because David Lodge um, appeared in a lot of films with Peter Sellers because they were best friends. Oh, okay. And uh, they, um, Dave Lodge, in fact, Dave, this is what I said about uh, John LeMajuria, probably Dave Lodge has been in the most films with Peter Sellers, let's put it that way. Uh, but Dave Lodge, probably the best known Sellers film that he was in is Two Way Stretch, which is a terrific film. Okay. We've seen that. Um, but yeah, we have the scene where Kite arrives to see Major Hitchcock, flanked by other members of the works committee, including the actor John Comer, who did you well, recognize him? Yes. And, and one thing that I found very, very interesting about the working class actors there are actors that represent working class accents of almost every British area. So you've got John Comer, who's Northern. You've got John Kidd, who's Cockney. Uh, you've got... Um, Sam Kidd, Sam Kidd. Sam Kidd, sorry. It's mm. because I know John Kidd's son, who I used to know. So oh, I, right. I always end up calling them that. Yeah, I know. My mum, when my mum was still alive, she saw John Kidd at a party, went, you have to make friends with him because he's Sam Kidd's son. <laughs> um, well done. Victor Madden, of course, being Cockney. But you've got Kenneth Griffith. 
who's Welsh. Yeah. I'm writing down the names. Where did I put the rest of the names? Oh, this is the trouble with my notes. They're all over oh, the Kaji, place. Kaji Robinson. Kaji Robinson. And there's an Irish actor, Donald. Where have I written it? Ah. Oh, um, Donald D- Donnelly. Donald Donnelly. Yeah. Mm. So, so, and I do wonder how purposeful that is, that they have encompassed like so many working class accents and so many working class people together, even though they're all working in one factory in, do we ever know where it is? London. It's London. Somewhere. Um, I don't think there's a Scotsman and all ages as well. So one of the boys on the, one of the guys in the works committee, whose name I've got it, it's Billy somebody, I've forgotten his surname. He's really young. He's clearly only about 18 or 19. And then you've got quite old the guy towers over them so so they've encompassed all peoples all men <laughs> in 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 the works committee which i find very interesting that's absolutely yeah it's, i never thought of that but yeah they take it like I say apart from the scots they're taking off every part of the british isles aren't they yeah um and same kids same kids sole purpose in this film is to almost sound like he's going to swear then what's he doing on a f- 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 forklift truck I do like to point this stuff out when I'm because because when I'm a comedy teacher to the younger people listening that he also does a, a k- k- k. he's a k- k- k. I can't remember what the what word he says in the end but that is that plot. is a plot I think plot that's yeah. it. And, and they stare at him and so in 1959 they did call people the c word and it's very clear that they're all expecting him to say the c word from the way that I mean I think it's the widest Peter Sellers eyes get in the entire film. <laughs> Yeah. Um, I wanted to mention, by the way, Mr. Muhammad, yes. who's Marn Maitland. Mm-hmm. Um, one, of, one of the things, one of the ticks we can give this film in terms of not being lazy, and they could have just, well, you know, Peter Sellers himself very often would yes. brown up and play yeah. Indian characters. I'm surprised that they didn't have a character in brown face, but, you know, all yes, credit to I'm them. Not- if we're being very purist now, Marn Maitland was of Indian heritage and he is playing uh, oh, right, someone okay. who we presume is Turkish, of Muslim heritage. Mm. No, but the thing is, we, we're still quite behind on that one. He, he is uh, the 1950s Omid Jalili. So, you know, now if mm. there's somebody beige, it's played by Omid Jalili. Yeah, OK, that's fair enough. Yeah. Um, and... Uh, and but no, it's my in-laws are Turkish. My husband's Turkish, so that, I think that's why I get quite attached to Mr. Muhammad being Turkish because I see it as representation, even though he's a horrible character. But they're all horrible characters. Uh, and and I suppose we should say as well for anybody watching the film, content warning: there is a lot of racialized language. Yeah. But it's very specifically used to point out the gulf between Fred Kite's political intentions and how he actually feels about his own career. So it is the only time where he does chase money. So when he's taught, when Fred Kite is talking to Windrush about his political principles, one of the things he mentions is that the denigration of the coloured man has led them to being undervalued as workers. Mm. Um, And Mm. it's quite a big point that he's making there. And it's a point that I actually had a row with my husband about very recently um, about whether the, the white working class in this country kind of take their role slightly for granted. And, and, and this film very much looks at, are the white working class slightly overprivileged? Do they think that they don't actually have to put a bit of elbow grease in to do some work? Um, and, and 
listeners to the podcast be very pleased that my, to hear that my husband told me off for denigrating the white working class. <laughs> but this is a very interesting political point that Fred Kite makes that when you constantly insult and you constantly stereotype black people, they then won't be given good jobs yes. because they're thought of as stupid. And then the reason that that language is used is that later on, when uh, they start panicking after Windrush messes up their um, time and motion study, so they're all going to have to work harder, John Comer does say they're going to have us working like blacks, which we wouldn't accept now, but that is used for, to, for Fred Kite then panics, but, and he specifically says that they're going to replace all of the workers here black workers like they did on the buses in Birmingham. And so the reason that, that this language is used and it's not my place to say it's okay, so that would be up to, to somebody black or brown, but it is specifically to show that Fred Kite believes that colored people should be working, sorry, that's the term he uses, mm -hmm. until he's faced to the fact that he might be sacked and replaced by somebody. Yes. And also it's to point out that at the time, Black people were used very much to replace other workers and to be cheap labour rather than to be brought in to work alongside the white working class and get equal wages and equal respect with them, which is still an issue now. We still see the black working class and the white working class being played off each other by being told they're going to replace each other rather than being told, well, we've got room in the factory for both and you can work alongside each other. So to see these principles being dragged into a very commercial, a very big hit film in 1959, I think is very interesting now. Absolutely. It's interesting, just on the fact, you know, we're talking about racial tensions in 1950s Britain. It's interesting, yeah. I'm sure it's a coincidence, but it's interesting that Stanley's surname is Windrush. Yes, and, and I did, when I was watching I'm Alright Jack, before you and me were going to talk about it like a few months ago, I did say on Twitter, do people know if this is on purpose? And it doesn't seem to be on purpose because it was his name and Private's Progress mm. as well. But yeah, since the Windrush generation had just arrived, to do work. Mm. And since Stanley's role in this film is to be the innocent person who just has arrived in this British cultural melee, who just wants to do some work, make some money, get a flat, and has to go through this stupid bureaucratic rigmarole and keep getting used by every other side, it does seem very on the nose that his name is Windrush. Yes, it does. Anyway, let's let's talk about um, let's talk about Liz Fraser. See, I told you I'm not very funny when I'm talking about things. I find these too interesting. That I get is... too deep with stuff. <laughs> it's too political. I... No, 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 no. I like <laughs> I like I like to overanalyze things. I really do. People know this. Um, so yeah, so Liz Fraser. So okay, Fred Kite. He's very impressed by Stanley. Stanley's thinking about getting a a, a, a local local boarding somewhere, and um, Kite offers uh, him to come and stay with him and his family. And Stanley's a bit reluctant, I guess, because he just—he's a bit snobbish, really, isn't he, Stanley? He's looking down his nose yes. at Kite here. Well, there's also the scene where his aunt meets Irene Handel and decides immediately she's not going to like her, mm. like refuses mm. tea until Irene Handel says something she agrees with, and then there's a very clear reassessment. Margaret Rutherford's face like contorts for quite a while until she says, "I will have that cup of tea, actually." Yeah. So he has come from a family who would not associate with those types. Yeah. You probably hate me for saying this, but then 
um, Liz Fraser's breasts walk in the room. <laughs> <laughs> I, I don't hate you because Liz Fraser's breasts are iconic. <laughs> and um, Stanley, Stanley suddenly has a change of heart for some reason. I don't know quite why. But, <laughs> um, but what we're talking about, Liz Fraser's breasts. Liz Fraser's breasts are actually one of the reasons that my mum idolised Liz Fraser. So if you follow her through her whole career, my mum... Now, how old would my mum have been? My mum was born in 35, so she would have been in her late 20s when this film came out, Mm -hmm. mid-20s. And so Liz Fraser was a, a sex symbol and an idol of beauty, and then later on... She was in films like the Confessions films where she always played extremely alpha, sexually aggressive women who very much, Liz Fraser pretty much her whole career played women who chose her men and said, right, I'm having you and was never passive. Um, And then after being this very uh, alpha sex symbol for all of her career, got breast cancer. And for many women losing a breast when you are known for your breasts, you know, mm. as you've said, this is her first film and her breasts walk in in front of her. Um, she could have been somebody who just decided to hide away and she didn't. She was very public about her breast cancer and she still appeared in public with her prosthetic breast. And my mom had breast cancer and watching Liz Fraser going through it very much helped my mum go through it. Oh, lovely. Okay. Um, so, no, I don't mind you talking about her breasts at all because her breasts were very important in our household. <laughs> Yeah, and and I think I'd love to think that this is an ad lib by Sellers. He 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 refers to so she is his daughter Cynthia, and mm-hmm. she, she works there spindle polishing. I just think that's lovely. Um, it's just there's, there's, oh my god, I've never even got the double entendre from that. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, Dad, tell Mum I'll be in late tonight, will you? Very well, Cynthia. You want no better time, are you? Don't be daft. Going up west, dancing. My daughter, Cynthia, works here spindle polishing. Oh, no, I mean, you know, they're not subtle with her either. There's a bit later where um, Dennis Price is talking about doing foreign business deals and he calls it intercourse with foreign partners. And Liz Fraser says to Stanley, I'm not following this at all. What's he talking about? And he says, he's saying we should have intercourse with foreign partners. And she goes, ooh, and suddenly she's interested. (laughs) She gives Stanley the glad eye, doesn't she? She she says she's going up West dancing. And then we see the scene back. Stanley arrives at Fred Kite's house and Kite gives him some books to read on, I don't know, dialectic materialism. And there's this really rose-tinted ideal of, of a worker's paradise and yeah. goes on about Russia, the cornfields and ballet in the evening. And there's a, there's a photo on the, we see a photo on the mantelpiece later of Sellers and Handel dressed up in wedding garb. It's obviously meant to be their wedding photograph. Oh, I didn't um, see that. I'll have to look for that. I'd love to know where that photograph is now. It's probably long gone. And it's hard, I mean, there's so much goes on in this film. It's hard to kind of, to, to go through it all, but essentially, yeah. um, the the time in motion man John Le Mesurier basically times Stanley on his forklift, and um, basically which Stanley falls for because he's just trying to be friendly. Yeah, and that's also quite it's, it's almost quite a sad bit in the film in that when Stanley arrives at the plant, Victor Madden takes him under his arm, say, "This is what you do, and this is what you do, and this is what you do," 
And so when John Le Majurier arrives and Stanley thinks he's a new worker, he almost feels like he's doing the same thing that Nolsey did. He's showing him how to work a forklift truck. Hmm. He doesn't for one second think that this person is tricking him into doing as much work as he can, as fast as he can, so they can start paying the staff less. Yeah. Um, and of course, it, it, it just it basically results in uh, everybody out, results in a strike. Yeah, which is based on the fact that Fred Kite doesn't want everybody to be replaced by black workers. That's right. That's, that's the moment that it that it snaps, which I guess is the point, the point for me where Fred Kite becomes a bad guy. Yes, um, but this but this then I think is the most interesting part of the film is is mm-hmm. is when when Kite he arrives home from a branch meeting and he gives Stanley a letter telling him he's been sent to Coventry. Nobody's going to speak to him for a month. Um, and this is when the press arrive because um, Coxie has suggested tipping off the papers to try and accelerate things, essentially. Um, and uh, listeners who haven't seen this film might be confused by all this, but the press arrive. Uh, Fred Kite has a fork loaded with something revolting. I don't know what he's eating. He's, he's eating. It looks tea. like a steak pie. Yeah. Um, and and and. Kite assumes that they want to speak, the press want to speak to him and he's going to issue a statement. And uh, But they're actually, yeah. there, they're actually there to see Stanley. He's going to have his Mick Lynch moment. Yeah. He's going to become a hero of the people and go viral. Yeah. Kite, yeah. Kite is he's wrong-footed. And when Stanley walks into the room, the, the press descend on him and they confirm with Stanley that the strike is because he worked faster and more efficiently. Um, and then Stanley sort of innocently reveals that they've sent him to Coventry. And this makes, if you look at Sellers, his eyes are just like going all over the shop. He looks so ill at ease and nervous. But it is also, it's, I, <clears throat> I think that as well is, is an interesting pastiche on the commercialism of the time, especially because they make a lot of references to the war. And for us, you go, well, it was 10 years later. Why are they still banging on about the war? But it seems to be very culturally influenced by it. Is that you would presume a newspaper would want to talk to the head of the trade union or the head of the business. Yes. The fact that they want to talk to a bloke and they're interested in his romances and his backstory and him being ordinary possibly was quite a new thing because we still think of that as quite new. You know, why why do they want to interview people in the queue rather than the quick rather than you know uh, a member of the government? Yes. So, so it, it also introduces that kind of pop culture aspect that's that's threaded through the film. Of, of not wanting to actually deal with the important so even the press at this point don't want to deal with the important issues and don't want to deal with the politics they're just, they're playing as much as everybody else is that's a that's a great point yeah because the 50s was the the real rise of the sunday newspapers as well where there's salacious stories about sex maniacs roaming the streets and well the way that um See, I've forgotten his name. You're better with names. The actor who plays the the rather salacious newspaper reporter. So you've got a few of them are just going, you know, is your name Stanley Windrush? We believe that you worked really hard. And then they have the, the guy who's very similar to the person who played the child catcher, but he isn't him. Yes. So do you have a young lady? And at the point where Cynthia gets mentioned, it all becomes very, oh, there's a young lady in your life. Is she here? Um. And the salaciousness of it is very pointed up. Yeah, they want to, they, they're looking for the human angle, aren't they? Yeah. Um, and, then, and then we see a, a, a montage of the next morning papers, front pages, which are unanimously supporting Stanley. The 
the bloody Daily Express has salutes Stanley Windrush, for example. And yeah, and I guess we should point out to people who don't know the film is that when they all walk out, yeah, this is this is relatively important. When Aunt Dolly comes to see him, mm. um, and remember, Aunt Dolly, when Aunt Dolly is speaking to him, they are interviewing Aunt Dolly's chauffeur, who is telling them that she doesn't pay pay him enough. Yes, he's giving them the skinny. Um, yeah, she tells Stanley that. Yeah, she basically says, "Look, I'm I'm funding your lifestyle now because you said you wanted to get a job." And yet you haven't got a job. You, you've decided not to do your job whilst sitting at home. And this this isn't how we do things. And he he decides that he needs to go back to work. So the reason that this becomes a big issue in the papers is that he is still working through the strike. He's yes. the only person um, in the arms factory that's actually doing any work. Yeah, and they find that the the works committee find out that he's related. To his, his uncle is um, is Bertram. Um, it's Dennis Price, and they accuse him of being like a traitor, a fifth columnist, a Judas, and that's when. And I think Judas is very telling as well of how how Sellers, how Fred Kite feels about Stanley. That, yes, yes. You know, that he feels that close to Stanley, that he is a Judas. He's been betrayed quite, quite personally. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and obviously, Kite has got well, as far as Kite's concerned, he's got no uh, choice but to send him packing and boot him out of the house. Mrs. Kite and Cynthia arrive home from, I think they've been to visit their aunt or something. And then, yeah, and then Irene Handel tears a strip off him and tells him that the strike has spread. Again, very strong woman, very strong matriarchal figure. And Kite is quivering, isn't he, in the face of her onslaught. She basically says, yeah. if you're going to go on strike, we are too. And, and her and Cynthia basically bugger off to the aunt's house again. I hope you're satisfied, Fred Kite. Look, Mother, it was democratically arrived at. I mean, I am chairman of the Works Committee. Oh, yes, you're chairman of the Works Committee, all right. Don't we all know it? Sick to death of you and your Works Committee. Union this, union that, and your blasted Soviet Union. There is a strike on, Mother. You telling me there's a strike on? I'll tell you something else. The strike spread to this house from now on. Cynthia, get our bags packed. We're going back to Auntie Edie's. There's two can play at this game, you know. You wanted a strike, you got one. Perhaps when you feel like going back to work, I will. And here's something else I'm going to tell you. Here's another strike that's 100% solid. It's probably the only time in the whole film somebody makes a logical point, because the entire film is run by not being logical, that nobody's yeah. making a logical point at any, at any time until Irene Handel says, well, why am I still cooking and cleaning for you if you've gone on strike? Because her pay as a housewife is his pay. Yes. So yeah. yeah, she walks out and lets him do all the cleaning. I think it's another reason I relate to Fred Kite is he has the domestic abilities I have. He's left <laughs> alone for about three days and he has not thought to wash up a plate before he uses the next plate. For him to be on his own in the house, there's so much washing up, like a ridiculous wow, it's like washing it's, up for just one person. It's, it's verging on the with now and I kitchen, isn't it? It is, it is. Um, yeah, it's a lovely, it's a lovely snapshot of life within the house, within the kite house, without yes. without I really handle being there. Uh, Fred Kite is uh, dejectedly walking around this really untidy kitchen. He's with a penny on. Yeah, and penny on. There's this mournful kind of trumpet playing in the background. He steps. <laughs> steps barefoot onto a piece of toast and just, <laughs> just kind of peels it off his foot despondently 
This is um, so me, somebody with high <laughs> principles and low practicality. That's me all over. Um, and but by the way, the strike has now gone national. There's now two and a half million, or something like that. Two yeah. and a half million. So the trains go on strike. Everybody goes on strike. Yeah, yeah. And we have all these montages of um, empty shipyards and railway sidings and things like that. Um, and so it messes up the plan. So the original plan was that Missiles Limited would go on strike so that the missile uh, contract could be transferred to Cox's factory. Yeah. But Cox's factory then goes on strike as well. Yeah. So the two bad guys, Dennis Price and Richard Attenborough, it's now gone wrong for them because they can't get the money for the missiles because the missiles aren't being made. So they so they both ask Terry Thomas, the major, to go and try and negotiate with Kite to try and some salvage something. And they, mm. they don't quite know what to do. And um, I love the fact that Terry Thomas refers to Fred Kite as absolute shocker. Well, Jeff sleeps in his vest. <laughs> <laughs> and this is the scene where we get um, Terry Thomas turning up to Fred Kite's house. Yes, uh, which is lovely. It and is it, lovely. You know, even though he's just said he's the sort of guy who sleeps in his vest, they seem to really, well, once they've had a few sherries, mm. they seem to really get on. Um, mm. Uh, but but Terry Thomas's character as well, he insults the management to Kite and he insults Kite to the management. So he's also being being ungenuine the whole time. He's one of those people, and I've worked with people like this, I'm sure you have, who will uh -huh. tell who will tell you what they know you want to hear. Yes. Now here's my favorite Terry Thomas fact that I just found out. Yeah. Terry Thomas's real name was Thomas Terry. It was Thomas Terry Stevens, but you know, he always had it as a, like, he had it as his first name, like Madonna. He's very like Madonna. He is like very One first name and the big gap in his teeth. And the conical bra. Mm -hmm. Yes. So he is our Madonna. And the other thing I was going to, I was going to make some sort of sarcastic comment about he's being, he's called Terry Thomas with a hyphen in the middle because it represents the gap in his teeth. And that actually is why, if you read why he put the hyphen, he said it was because he wanted it to be seen as a first name, but also because it represented the gap in his teeth. <laughs> right. Oh, wow. Yeah. It's amazing. He's very self-knowing. I know that he was related to Richard Briers. I didn't know that. Yeah, uh, cousins, I think. Um, okay. And that his dad, well, there's a big thing as well that his dad was a butcher, so the whole kind of upper class thing is made up. But if you look at his biography, he was seduced by his housekeeper. So he was a butcher that had a housekeeper, so they weren't exactly working uh, class. No, no. Um, by accident, Kite hits on this plan, or this idea, the solution, that that um, if Stanley resigns due to ill health brought on by overwork, that will work for everybody. Basically. Yeah. And actually, that, that's interesting as well in this scene, is that even though Kite is drunk and he's emotional, he's emotional because more that Stanley's left him than his wife has left him. Um, he pro he's properly thinking, you know, mm. when, when, when Terry Thomas, when Hitchcock makes a proposal, or can we do this? He has a, a good moment of thinking going, no, 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 that wouldn't work in the way that the union is run. So they actually have a quite a, a sensible meeting. You get the impression that Kite is probably fairly good at his job, fairly good. But we don't even know what his job is. Like most shop stewards, they work as well. True. He That's seems true. to not actually work on the factory floor. Well, I know that, I, I believe at this time, I don't know if it's still the case, or well, shop stewards are really a thing of the past now, aren't they really? But it, it was an unpaid position, wasn't it? Okay, um, okay. So it's really, it, it's someone would want to be a shop steward who just wants, I, I guess, a certain degree of power because they're certainly not getting paid for it. Um, yeah. So, so, and then we have this, 
because Stanley's basically become a national hero in terms of the media, mm. he's invited onto this kind of question time like program called Argument, hosted by the real Malcolm life Malcolm Muggeridge. Yes. Muggeridge. Yeah. And he um, was a real life TV presenter. And that's another thing that I meant to mention from earlier. So there's a narration at the beginning of the film. Mm. And the narration is done in the Pathé newsreel voice. Mm. I know this because I'm currently researching a play which is set in 1940, so I'm watching a lot of Pathé newsreels. And that's another thing we might not notice when we watch the film now, is that it is presented like a documentary. Mm. The, the, the voiceover would have made the audience feel like they were watching the news. Yes. So it's very much a docu-comedy in the same vein as The Office. Yeah. And it has a lot of echoes of The Office, actually. Um, Malcolm Muggeridge, of course, probably most remembered now by our generation as the guy that had that argument on television with John Cleese and Michael Palin about Life of Brian. Oh, okay. Malcolm Muggeridge was complaining about the film because he saw it as being um, blasphemous. blasphemous, although he'd been late getting into the cinema. So he missed the first scene where we actually clearly see Jesus. Being born and, somewhere else. And then it pans across to... to um, Brian, doesn't it? Hmm. So it's clearly not meant to be Jesus. But I'd he... forgotten that was Malcolm Muggeridge. Yeah. Of course he was, you know, it'd be similar to having Jeremy Paxman now suddenly pop up in the film. Yeah, and I think... And again, th as a comment on society, these people, the people on this panel are um, a... a, 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 a <laughs> I'm pausing because we never know what nationality Mr. Muhammad is. But if we're going to go with Turkish, a, a Turkish arms broker who seems to be quite high up in the government of some Arabian country, um, a man who runs a missile factory and a trade union leader. And these people are ultimately answerable to the television. There are no politicians in the whole film, I think. No, I don't think there there's, are any politicians. There's, there's um, the Minister of Labour who's interviewed on television very briefly oh, during the strike. That, that's a very clever bit. I remember that bit. The Minister of Labour and also then they also interview the head of the TUC. Yes. And both of them say nothing. Yes. The Minister of Labour says this is an ongoing issue and the head of the TUC says exactly the same thing, which is echoed earlier in the film when Dennis Price says, I've written this down, Dennis Price says, what I love about capitalism is we're all in it. We're all in the same game working together. And it instantly goes to Fred Kite saying, what I love about communism is we're all in the same game moving forwards together. Mm. So mm. it constantly has this balance of they're showing these are both the same. Yes. They're both just trying to make money and they're both trying to convince you that you are working for yourself. It's kind of, it's, it's corrosive though, because I hate that argument that, you know, <laughs> you know, people that say, lazy people that say all politicians, they're all as bad as each other. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's like, no, they're not. They're not all as bad as each other. I blame the, um, don't want to get political here, but I blame <laughs> the, uh, But we're, the, we're talking about I'm All Right, Jack. It's an incredibly political film. Yeah, but I blame the um, expenses scandal. I think that had a, a really corrosive effect on uh, the okay, public's perception. Okay, because both sides were doing similar. Yeah, but not all of them. They, they weren't all uh, no, no, fiddling no, their no. expenses. But now it's it, very easy for people to to forgive the government or members of parliament by just saying they're all as bad as each other yeah um also obviously we, we, we forgot to mention so coxie tries to tries to bribe tries to buy him off with a hold all full of one pound notes i think well, at this point we don't know if he's trying to so at this point he gives him the hold all and stanley takes the hold all of one pound notes which is mm. clearly 
thousands of pounds. Well, that's just a bit weird. This is where Coxie has revealed the whole plan. And Stanley just is is reeling from this. He looks like he's in a daze. He, he can't, it's it's kind of like the scales have fallen from his eyes. Uh, but Stanley, yeah, Stanley takes the hold or we don't know what he's going to do with it. And then we, we, we cut to the interview itself. And again, before you get to Stanley, there's a lovely Peter Sellers bit here as well. Lovely piece of oh, content. Yeah. Uh, Kite is the only person who talks. Um, and he has a wonderful bit of business where he's trying to be really professional, but he's never been in a television studio before. <laughs> and the televisions, the director's trying to get him to wind up, but he doesn't understand why he's being waved <laughs> at, which makes him completely forget his point. Oh, yes. Um, the, uh, the situation is quite straightforward. As trade unionists, we have always been concerned uh, we, uh, for efficiency and for the individual worker. And it is, it is for that reason that we oppose the attempt of the management to overwork the man on the job. It is for that reason that we oppose the induction of... Um, the, uh, and yeah, everybody agrees that all of his friends go, yeah, you said it, you tell him, but he actually didn't say anything. All he says is, the, I think he says, the situation is quite straightforward. And you got Mum and Cynthia there in the audience. Everyone seems to be in the, in the audience. Mum and Cynthia, half of the trade unionists are in the audience and half of them are watching it at the pub. Yeah, and, and Victor Madden is front and centre oh. in the pub, isn't he? Yeah. Um, in it marvelous, which he says in about five times in the film. One little touch, one little scene that I forgot to mention early, from earlier with Victor Madden, and it kind of shows the character, the character who plays Knowles, is actually a decent guy. The striker's called, everyone's out. Yeah. And then you see a little bit later on Victor Madden's character on his bike, cycling yeah. back to the factory, goes up to the crate where the, the guys are playing cards and tells them that there's a strike on. He's remembered them. You know, and yeah. and they say, oh right, well, there's no point us working, doing all this work. We may as well go home. <laughs> yeah, no. Knowles is clearly always thinking about everybody else. Yes. Even yes. though he's used at the beginning, he is the soldier that they show when when Churchill does the V sign for peace. They show a soldier doing the V sign, as in the up yours. Yeah. And then it goes into the theme tune. So he is shown as the archetypal I'm all right jack person mm. which is somebody saying i'm fine so who cares about you and apparently the phrase originates from a sailor who was saved uh, there was a sailor who was saved from some conflict and after he got onto the boat he pulled the ladder up after him saying ah. i'm all right jack um but actually Knowles, even though he very much keeps up the system of people not working but still getting paid he is very much a character that yeah he checks in on everybody. You can tell in his head, he's always thinking about other people. Mm. Not yes. thinking about himself, actually. Yes. So Stanley's on this panel and he's smoking endless cigarettes. Yes. Um, and he looks really, <laughs> he's really agitated. And then he he starts to speak. He d decides there and then that he's going to blow the gaff. Yeah. Um, and he gives both. So he interrupts Kite and gives both barrels to Fred Kite. Um, and, and then he starts laying into his uncle Bertram. Much more angrily as well. Yes. Uh, yeah. With Kite, he just talks him, but with Uncle Bertram, he goes right up to his face and starts shouting in his face. And the camera, the, the, the producer panics and they need to move all the cameras. 
he sort of shouts at Uncle Bert. He says, you, he's cheated everyone, even his own mother, which is Aunt Dolly. Um, and he says, you're a, you're a bounder, a streamlined, chromium-plated, old-fashioned bounder. And which they, is the only other time we see Esma Cannon. So we watch yes. Aunt Dolly react yes. to the fact that her, her son has cheated her. And uh, the two servants, the chauffeur and Esma Cannon, are laughing in the background because they're, they're an absolute glee that Dennis Price is being shown out for who he is. Yes. Yeah. And it, it culminates in Stanley upending the whole door and all the money coming out and flying everywhere and the whole audience, everybody yeah. scrabbling that's weird. for money. So, right. For anybody who's done any kind of film studies, so so a couple of really weird things happen in this scene. They're in they're in a BBC television studio and he throws money everywhere. So the audience rushes to get the money. It instantly turns into a pastiche of Battleship Potemkin. So have you seen Battleship Potemkin? I've only seen the, the pram going down the steps, I'm afraid. It's the pram going down the steps scene. Mm. There is a bit where an intellectual... He's shown to be an intellectual because he's wearing glasses mm. and he is trying to prevent what's happening. I know, I think it's the woman who gets the gun in her face is wearing the glasses and the glass of her eyeglasses shatters as she's hit in the face. Right. But what you get in uh, I'm All Right, Jack, is as the money flies around, you get very extreme close-ups of people's faces. And the man who is the end of the world is Nye Man is shoved to the floor and his hand is stamped on and you get a very extreme close-up of his face with his round glasses screaming. And it is an absolute, like it's so much like Battleship Potemkin, oh. it has to be on purpose, but I can't work out why. Whether it's something to do with a class structure, I don't know. Oh, wow. But clearly, it, it's, it's so much the same. It's clearly meant to be like Battleship I mean, that, that, is, that scene is a much parodied scene isn't it from Battleship Potemkin I know that they do it oh, yeah. it's not a parody but they there's a nod to it in um the Untouchables film isn't there yeah um, yeah but at this time back in the 50s would would they have been cine literate like I don't know how the Bolting brothers would have been I don't know how big it was commercially I know Battleship Potemkin because I used to work at the film museum at the BFI right and uh, I worked as a Russian agitprop worker so I would be teaching how Battleship Potemkin works to people who came into the museum. This That's why I know that the glasses, these glasses, they represent uh, intelligentsia, that they read and they talk, but they do not fight. And you see the glass has been broken because what she has seen is so horrific. And I would talk about this all day. Yeah. Uh, so I remember that each character that's shown in close up in Battleship Potemkin uh, represents a different level of the class structure. Eisenstein, um, was one of the first people to use symbols to represent political tropes. Yeah, I feel really stupid now because um, <laughs> the, point, the point I was going to make about this scene was that it reminded me a bit of that episode of Filthy Rich and Cat Flap. Um, do you remember Filthy Rich and Cat Flap? Like I say, I have no memories of my own youth. Oh, okay. <laughs> there's, a, there's, a, there's, a, there's a, an episode where there's a fictional, they're filming a fictional game show called Ooh, Sounds a Bit Rude. Oh, yeah. Um, and it descends into chaos. And the, the TV producer at the end, played by Chris Barry, okay. is, is basically losing his crap and um, ends up with his head in his hands because everything's everything's gone wrong. And it just reminded me a bit of that. But anyway, yeah. you, you, you've bought Battleship that, Potemkin. I've bought Filthy Rich and Cat Flap. But, but this scene instantly goes from Battleship Potemkin to then um, a sort of Keystone Cops style punching session 
uh, with with um, a, a woman, a, a large woman who's got a lot of money being approached by Coxie, who who whacks Coxie over the head. But then I was showing it to my daughter earlier. I said, "You guess what happens next?" And she's going, "Oh, I don't know." Vikings arrive. Mm. So then mm. it becomes Mel Brooks. It can go from Battleship Potemkin. It's Blazing Saddles. Yeah. In the space of one minute. <laughs> Jeez, it, it, yeah. So Vikings arrive, which you presume when you're watching it, it's because it's the BBC studios and clearly next door they were filming some kind of Viking epic. Therefore, But that's never explained. It's never explained where the Vikings come from, why they're there, how they know there's money. It's the most surreal moment of the entire film where they <laughs> give in to slapstick comedy. Yeah. Oh, and I forgot to mention this. This when when Stanley's laying into his uncle, he says he says that you're waving the Union Jack and nobody can see what you're getting up to behind it. I just yes. I just wrote down um, uh, plus ça change. You know, yes. Uh, it, it was ever thus. It's very contemporary politics. Apart mm. from the fact that I don't like comparing Fred Kite to Mick Lynch because I love Mick Lynch and Fred Kite is a bad guy, and, and you know, and that is one difference. Uh, when I was looking at Mick Lynch videos. There was that whole thing, um, the interview had with Kay Burley, where she kept saying, what will you do to people who break the strike? And he just kept laughing and saying, what do you think I'm going to do, Kay? And it was clear that she was implying that they would get beaten up because that is a, a stereotype and a trope. Yeah. And Mick Lynch made it very clear that they would be spoken to and have things explained to them. Whereas on the picket line, Fred Kite's people are actually being quite violent to Stanley when he arrives and tries to cross. Yes, yeah, yeah. That's when he calls him Judas, actually. That's that that is a moment where you see Fred Kite genuinely emotionally upset that mm. Stanley is breaking the strike and being beaten up. He seems to be upset about both of those things. He does. He does. And this this film ends unexpectedly, really, as as we see Raymond Huntley as the magistrate finding against Stanley. Um yes. and accuses him of slandering both Uncle Bertie and Fred Kite, who both are in the in the court and they both look very smug and satisfied by this basically so they've won really haven't yeah. they uh and it's just it's a weird ending it, it is as i said it's a plague on all your houses really by the boltings yeah. and he's bound over to keep the peace for a year so we see we, we we end up seeing him back at sunny glades with his dad who seems to be still washing mushrooms or whatever he's doing <laughs> um, uh and like you say, all these naked women want him to play tennis and end up chasing him through the woods. But the difference is now that he's naked. So in the first scene, he's visiting his father and he's not naked and he's very clear that he does not want to be naked and he finds it weird. But in the last scene, when he goes back, he's not visiting, he's clearly living there. Yeah. And I guess there is meant to be a sense of giving up on society. Yeah. That society is so trash and so riddled with, with stupid people that you have to literally give up on all of it to make it work you can't you have can have no possessions you can't even have clothes and and yes but there is that odd thing at the end that he is just as terrified of the naked women as he was of uh, the nuclear arms race <laughs> yes but just to just to finish off really um sellers himself described the character fred kite as uh, on the surface an infuriating old blockhead and yet somehow moving who did his best according to his own lights. And in 1971, Sellers said in an interview that the Bolting brothers were writing a sequel to this film where, where Fred Kite becomes an MP. Yeah, yeah. Um, but that never happened. And he did say in another interview in the 70s that 
and I pre presume this was before being there, um, he was asked what his favorite film of his was, and Sellers said, um, this film, only two can play, and Doctor Strangelove. So, okay. uh, um, but well, it was similar to Doctor Strangelove in the, you know, the illogical machinations of the arms race. Yeah, yes, and and um, and it was the film that made him really, wasn't it, this film? Uh, yes, it was when he won the BAFTA. I hadn't realised how famous he was before. I think my mum had always given me the impression that he hadn't been that famous before this, and he actually was very much so. Um, but I think this brought him to the visual arts, because before he was he was more well-known as an audio artist. Yeah, he'd made, he'd, I think he'd had his... I'm trying to think of the chronology. His first starring... Like name above the title was the mouse that roared, which was the same year. But I think okay. he made had made that the year before, uh, something like that. Anyway, but yeah. my mum, like I've got, I was trying to find it, even though we can't see it on the podcast, but I can't find it anywhere. My mum's got a very early autograph from Peter Sellers, um, because she was a big fan of his when he was on Razor Laugh, which was one of the first. <laughs> yeah, did. yeah. So when he was young, chubby Peter Sellers on the radio. Uh, doing all these different voices for Ted Ray. Um, and it's a really interesting autograph because it's got his home address on it. It's from his home address. Um, so it's weird to think that like any any celebrity now putting their home address on an autograph. Yeah. He was clearly, it was clearly one of the first autographs he'd been asked for because he wasn't, I think it was Razor Laugh pre-Goons. It was pre-Goons, wasn't it? Well, it started 49 and he was on it until 54. Yeah. Um, but the goons started 51 to 1960. Okay. Yeah. So oh, he was... well, my mum would just write to everybody and she would say to everybody that they were her favourite. And she once said to me, she once said, that sounds really mean and dishonest, but actually they really were all my favourites because I loved all of them. Oh. <laughs> so Mira, what are you what have you got coming up? What are you working on at the moment? What what's my uh... solo show vanilla? Yep. aforementioned which is linked to this because the Balting's grandson is going out to with Jade Thurwell from Little Mix who I mention and uh, investigate my solo show Vanilla is streaming on Next Up Comedy so that's nextupcomedy.com it is a streaming service which costs only £2 a month but it also comes with I think it comes with Amazon and various other things okay. I am gigging uh, all over the country um that's just so regular it's very hard to say exactly where because yes. also I don't know when people are listening to the podcast so if you follow me on Twitter um or go uh if you follow me on Twitter I talk a lot if you don't want me to talk a lot then like my Facebook page Facebook Marilow <laughs> Rock and they have my gigs on um and generally the big thing I'm doing at the moment is I'm writing a play uh which is probably not going to be that funny but of course I can't help but be sarcastic um, and that is going to be finished by January because I'm writing it as part of a scheme and that's going to be showcased at the Young Vic Theatre in Waterloo on the 13th of January. Fantastic okay mm. and this is the, the play you referred to earlier in terms of you were doing research on Pethy. Yes, 1940 it's about the uh, Isle of Man internment camp where they put all the enemy aliens so they put a lot oh. of German Jewish refugees but they also uh, were living with Nazis because they just Churchill wasn't bothered basically <laughs> Churchill they had a meeting where they tried to explain to Churchill that it's probably not a good idea to put Jewish refugees in with Nazis but he found it too confusing that there are all these different types of Germans so he just was like, oh, yeah, just uh, the famous phrase is collar the lot. Uh, so and my mu my mum and grandmother were there. So yet again, haunted by my mother. Um, I'm writing a play about her. 
Thanks to Meryl. Thanks for listening. See you all next week. If I've not gone on strike. Yeah. Cheers. <laughs>